0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Family Law and Lattes. This podcast is for family law professionals in England and Wales looking for straightforward, helpful tips or toolkits to tackle all aspects of family law. Basically, something you can listen to for half an hour whilst you're enjoying your cup of coffee. My name is Melanie Bateau-Samuel, and today I'm joined by Max Turnall. Max is a family law barrister at One King's Bench Walk in London. Max's work includes divorce financial remedies, disputes between unmarried couples, private and international children cases, and jurisdiction disputes. He is a co-author of 1KBW on trust in matrimonial finance proceedings and a contributor to Jackson's matrimonial finance 10th edition. In a previous life, Max held visiting lectureships in contract law and the law of trust at King's College in London. Today will be the first in a series of episodes where Max and I will be addressing the terribly British topic of trusts. Hello, Max. Welcome to Family Law and Lattes. Thank you for agreeing to be on today's podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Excellent. Today we're talking about trusts and in particular, Talata, is that correct?
1: Yes. Yeah, I think I dodged a bullet not talking about the maintenance regulation. So, yeah, (laughs) yeah, line me up for Talata.
0: Excellent. Um, so, um, when we first started talking about this, you said you wanted to explain to me why family lawyers shouldn't be terrified of Talata claims. Is is that so? We're going to be doing today, or are you going to just tell me no? No, it's absolutely terrifying. Stay steer clear.
1: Well, I, I think it's not terrifying, but I mean, I, I think there there is cer- there are certain parts of procedure which can be terrifying, but in terms of the the substantive building blocks, I don't think it is. Um, Yeah, there's certainly a habit of family lawyers running for cover, because we take quite a lot of solace, I think, in the discretionary nature of family proceedings and Mm. our familiarity with the the principles and procedure. But you add up all of those building blocks within uh, a usual financial remedy application. You realise, wow, we do an awful lot. Talata is much easier.
0: But it's not the family procedure rules. So it's terrifying really you have to meet deadlines and you have to respect certain timings and you have to do certain things in a specific time and it's just really terrifying
1: but it is sort of outweighed that sort of and i appreciate that it's the dislike of the unlike isn't it but it's a huge growth area i mean i'm told that it's the fastest growing family type unmarried couples um and it's pretty aligned with and entwined with what we already do, namely, you know, preliminary issues within divorce about the ownership of the family home, schedule one applications and, and occupation orders. So we're we're best placed to deal with it. And yet only, you know, a, a few barristers really do an awful lot of it. And I think that's probably right as well, probably with the solicitors too.
0: Well, when I first started training, Artelata claims were only ever dealt with by the civil litigation team and they would be the ones dealing with it. It wouldn't be family. We'd just be advisors on it. We'd, we'd come and sit in the background and maybe advise on them. And it was like, I couldn't understand why, because it was effectively a family matter, just in a different way. But hey.
1: Yeah, your your, your conversations with the clients are, are quite similar. You're perhaps asking different or looking for different information with them, but they have the same sort of fears and concerns and all the rest of it. I, I think, yeah, once you've made peace with the fundamentally fundamentally declaratory nature of the proceedings, where they do, as you say, they remain chancery business and subject to the CPR. I don't think it's that bad. In fact, I think there's some comfort in in that certainty.
0: So really, we need to be convincing our colleagues that they shouldn't be scared of it, that they should get over it, and they should start looking into it in more detail.
1: I think so. But also, you're doing a Schedule 1 case, or you're defending against it, um, it might come up naturally. And it probably is quite a good thing to just be able to sort of cover the basics anyway, isn't it?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've, I've sat in on several meetings with barristers that shall not be named where both come up, Schedule 1 and Talata claims. And the first comment we get is, you should probably do a Schedule 1, stay away from Talata every single time. And it's like, okay, that's the advice we're getting. We're staying away. We're doing a schedule one. We know we are with that. At least we know how that works, but maybe we should be looking more into whether both of them or one or the other could be better.
1: Yes. And I suppose you, you don't necessarily know the strength of your, or, or the need for your schedule one claim, unless you know what's in the pot to begin with. Mm. And that might well be that you have a, a share or um, a beneficial interest in, in the family home. Um, but on the under Talata, I mean, the court's powers are, are quite narrow. You can order a sale of a property, you declare the party's beneficial shares in the property, and you make orders by way of a, an account or sort of com- compensatory type orders.
0: Okay. So let's say we manage managed to convince someone that they shouldn't be scared of the Talata claim and they should be doing it. What's the first thing they need to consider when they've got this idea of a Talata claim in front of them?
1: Well, I I think of a bit of a flow chart, either in your mind or perhaps even on paper, um, in terms of how you unpick it. So, you know, what's the property? Is it a freehold, a leasehold? Who are the legal owners? So, you, you know, you try and find the office copy entries from the land registry, which will provide far more detail than probably your clients ever will be able to do. Um, and then what is is there in respect of the beneficial ownership so you're looking for the tr1 or a declaration of trust by trustee um, sometimes hidden within a conveyancing file or certainly things that your clients know oh yes mm. right, this is this looks important i'll put it in a cub and forget about it so um those are probably the first things that you want to look at just to work out the layer of the land it's in the respect of the family home, you know, the most typical dispute. What you're trying to do is narrow the case down into one of a number of categories. Uh, let's not get into investment properties or proprietary estoppel. We, you know, we don't have espressos on us today. But, um, <laughs> but I, I think yeah, trying to narrow it down into those four categories.
0: Um, actually, I want to ask you uh, about those categories, but also. It's well. You might you might be looking. You might you might say, I'm going to talk about that in a minute." But what I want to know is often you think about cohabiting couples as the main cases here. But can we also look at um, other family members or in laws or whatever? Does does it have to be? Can it be anybody that's linked to the property?
1: Oh, I suppose it really depends, doesn't it? Because you, you kind of want to know quite quickly what what they're saying about it sure. um and but but then it, it does and can quite quickly get out of that domestic consumer context which is probably mm. what we are most familiar with sort of the, the typical case where someone comes in and says yeah i'm i'm not getting divorced but very similar sort of circumstances i'm uncoupling you know consciously uncoupling yeah. whatever they call it you're, you're separating from my my partner how do we sort out the family home
0: and can you have, again, this is going off the beaten track a little bit, but could you have um, a couple who are in turn making a claim against perhaps parents who own a property or other family members and they happen to be living in that property? Or is is does there need to be a link between that? Or can it just be kind of, we happen to be living in this property, we've invested in it, but it's owned by someone else or vice versa, someone else and they have an investment in it and they want to make the claim?
1: Well, I suppose It's quite fact specific isn't it sure. but yeah I, I think i would still start with the basic of, basics of who, who are the legal owners of the property because yeah. that's that's probably the first thing when you look at the office copy entries and see that oh actually you know my grandmother has a has a legal interest in the property well let's unpick that is that is that the correct situation um sure. a, and then looking through and seeing if you can see any further documentation about the beneficial interest
0: all right, let's go back on track. So, tell me about those categories you were mentioning that you were already removing some categories out of there.
1: Yes, so I mean, I've sort of realised as soon as I've said this categories, it sounds they're beginning to sound like prisons, don't they? But category A, uh, so joint legal owners, you've seen that from the office copy entry, um, and you've looked at the, the TR one, or, or there is a separate. Trust um, declaration of trust by deed, um, and it, it stipulates the shares in which the property is held. That's the, that's the nice, simple case that you know everything is sorted pretty sure. much in terms of the you know, the big big disputes. Because um, where you have those documents which comprehensively declare the beneficial interest in the property and its proceeds of sale, it's pretty much conclusive unless until it's varied by. The parties that are involved or it's rectified or it's set aside on the grounds mm. of fraud or mistake pretty you know rare grounds cuts, yeah. to to get into so that's one of the quite interesting cases or, or sort of number of cases where, where actually barristers get involved and actually it turns out that when you finally get the convincing file the tr1 actually sorts it all out sure. actually it's not there isn't really a need for a dispute, or there shouldn't be, subject to everyone being a bit reasonable about it. So that's category A. Category B is similarly quite, sometimes even more simple, where you have, um, again, joint legal owners, but you have um, a, a joint tenancy. So where neither party owns 50%, but they both own the property together and the, the rules of survivorship apply in it e.g. the survivor or the winner takes it all. Um, and on severance, you know, it creates a tendency in common and equal shares, end of. It's always 50-50. That's reaffirmed in, in Stack and Dowden. And I don't think there's any possible room to, for argument otherwise but for, as we sort of previously trailed, talking about you know fraud or mistake or anything like that. So those will be, and ever more so I think now, will be the majority of the sort of cases that we will see because you know the mandatory nature of having a TR1 um yeah then then so the, then it gets a little bit more difficult where which is probably when family lawyers begin to um probably get worried get, yeah maybe not worried but um but certainly you know you have to scratch their heads maybe look at some old notes from law school again um well, so you,
0: you do that too because I have all my old notes and frequently script back and go mm, okay yes that was that one
1: yes but yeah back when we were much more diligent students everything was yes. written really well and you could exactly. read your handwriting Highlighted, <laughs> yes yeah. yeah the keeping Ryman's in business with highlighters oh, yeah. um but yes, yeah, the category C, following our theme of prisons. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you, you have joint legal owners. That's quite clear. But you don't have any. You can't find any evidence that there's a declaration as to what happens to the beneficial interest. Um,
0: and this is really common. Sorry.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, it is. And you'd think, well, you've bought a house together. Like, surely you'd you'd want to nail things down. But perhaps most people do. They think, well, it's joint names, and therefore that's it. That's it. Yeah. And that, I'm not sure Baroness Hale says just quite the same thing within Stack and Dowden, but certainly it's a heavy burden. He says, you know, the, the equitable maxim of equity follows the law. Well, if you're the joint legal owners, then you are the most likely you're the yeah. joint beneficial owners, too. Um, at, that's certainly, at least in the domestic sort of consumer context, read that as being, you know, the family home lived in by, by the two parties. Um, yeah, conveyancing to joint names indicates both legal and beneficial joint tenancy. So, again, that's something that you would then look at than severing. Um, and I think actually in the joint decision of Baroness Hale and, and Lord Walker in and Jones and Colonel, the follow-on, um, the, said something along those lines again, pretty similar. Um but that presumption can of course be rebutted by evidence to the contrary intention and that's your, that's the cracking of the door open for the potential mm. dispute i think
0: so what's the last one of your prison categories
1: uh well that's the sole that's the sole owner case um which is where one person's on there and um and then it gets a little bit more difficult because yeah. again, you've got the prince, the presumption of equity following the law, um, and yeah, again, you're presuming there is no express declaration of trust. So the the client or or the claimant has to establish some sort of implied trust. So you know the what's normally now called a common intention constructive trust. So you've got to show that it was intended that he or she was. To have a beneficial interest at all and that can only be achieved by evidence of the party's actual intentions express or implu- or sorry infer- inferred and that's objectively ascertained so it's a question of fact and so that's when you sort of you begin really having to get you know polish out the highlighters and, and writing down exactly what your client yeah. says about what happened um and the the inference um bit is the is the thing that i think is a probably the head scratcher because there's a line of authority, particularly Rosset 2, that when you're looking at inference in sole name cases, direct contributions to purchase price, whether initially or, or subsequent in relation to the mortgage, will readily justify um, some sort of interference, but it's doubtful if, if much else will do. So um, of course that doesn't stop an express um, evidence of, of actual intentions. But when you don't have that, which yeah. seems to be quite a commonality, um, then it gets a bit more prob- problematic. Well, and
0: I can believe that because those are the the more common type of cases you get when you know, where we're looking at those Schedule One case slash to lots of cases where you're like, well, the other person owns the property, but we've lived there and I always thought this was our home because of conversations we've had, but there's nothing written. There's nothing set down. I've not contributed anything. You're like, ah, okay.
1: Yes. And I mean, you can usually demonstrate a common intention to provide a home for the other party and for children, but that's not sufficient necessarily in and of itself to establish a common intention, to have a share in property. There is that sort of difference there, which... I think does result in the hard cases, um,
0: and that's but, probably why you need to have that that look into whether you should be doing one, you know, Schedule One or Talata claim. Which one is going to work better,
1: or, or perhaps in tandem? So you're topping up mm. over and above. That seems to be also very common, um, and. Yeah. I, I, even I, when I was just sort of describing this, I sort of slipped up when I said imputed rather than inferred. And it really is one of those things where you sort of have to sort of almost go back to your notes and look. But in terms of the imputation that you can have, well, the, the only stage where you can do that is well, where you can say, well, now that we, we say there is a beneficial interest, but we don't know exactly what the share is, it doesn't necessarily have to be 50-50. So where the evidence shows there is a common intention to share beneficial ownership, but doesn't show what the shares were intended, um, then that's when the court becomes much more discretionary. It turns into much more familiar sort of exercise, having regard to the whole of the dealing in relation to the property. That's when you have the imputation. Um, It's not redistributive justice. So um, long statements talking about how the other person was nasty or isn't or or shouldn't cut it. it suddenly gets as closest to the discretionary part as I think we can get.
0: Oh, back to what we're used to. Yeah. Okay, so we've got this four categories. And um, what happens next? What do we do next?
1: Well, it depends what you what you want. I mean, if you want an order for sale, then that's um, something that you you would apply for. But but also the I suppose there's the other thing, which is equitable accounting. So um, this is the process where the court uses the sale proceeds to account between the co-owners for various items of it of expenditure so it's quite clear to that it doesn't affect the underlying beneficial interest that's the first stage
0: mm-hmm.
1: once you figure that out you've worked it out within category a b being the simple ones c and d slightly more challenging yeah. in, 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 in ascendance and then you move on to equitable accounting. So getting instructions from your uh, client about four main areas, occupation end, uh, who's been paying the mortgage, um, expenditure on improvements, repairs, that kind of thing, and, and receipt or, of rent. Let's say you're, you're renting a room out. They are, it, again, quite nice. You know, there's the there's solace in the fact that these are, are discretionary remedies. Um, there's no right or entitlement, as it were, to any of this. And the court can simply refuse to to, to get into it if it's disproportionate. If it's, you know, oh, you know, yes, we had a lodger for a couple of weekends in, in the summer, the court's probably not going to be involved, depending, unless of course it's a um, substantial... Um, sure,
0: but if you've had someone that's invested in refurbishments or where they've had, um, you know, renting out Airbnb or whatever, you might be able to argue that.
1: Oh, very much, yes. I mean, the, the most common one is, is occupation rent, where it's sort of notional rent charged against the occupier in favour of the non-occupier. And that's now under sort of compensatory payments under Section 5, uh, sorry, 13C of Delata. And it, it used to be confined to cases or sort of what I think they used to call ouster casters, where one party was excluded. But the modern approach seems to be a, probably a more realistic one, that there's a constructive exclusion of yeah. you know, one party or the other when a relationship breaks down because no one wants parties really living together.
0: So one party's moved out, but they're still able to make a claim against the other one staying there.
1: Yes, exactly. And it's usually calculated according to the market rent or, or the cost of alternative accommodation. So obviously, you know, you're you're in your home. Um, and you get all the benefits of that. But if you're out of the home and having to spend money, expend sure. money, then that doesn't seem particularly fair. Um, and of course, you can offset that against payments by, by one party to the mortgage as well, or, or even double it up if you're out of the home and you're paying for the mortgage and, and you've been you know, constructively excluded. Um, mm-hmm. There's traditionally been a bit of a, a separation between interest and capital of, of mortgages. So interest the occupying party will normally seek to set off the mortgage interest payments against occupation rent, if applicable, sort of a rule of convenience, I think. Um, but capital elements probably more important because, of course, they increase the equity that's available on, on sale. Um, so it's often unfair if the non-paying party receives the benefit. So it's usually a 50% job.
0: Okay. How do you go about, I mean, is that something that you'd, you'd have to sit down for a client at the beginning of the case and already make them kind of write everything down? Or is it something that as you're progressing throughout, you're like, okay, no, no, we now need to have all this information. Cause I'm just thinking it could be kind of for the client who's having to provide that information. This could be quite tough for them.
1: I think it's horses for courses. If a client's there and, and willing to show you bank statements, which there certainly are that, you know, oh, here's, mm-hmm. here's a thousand pages yeah. of all the contributions That's I've made, true, actually. <laughs> <laughs> then, then sure, you know, go, go through it with them. But yeah, I, I don't think there's an absolute impetus on the very first client meeting to get mm-hmm. out all of the details. And sometimes, yes, it, it comes out over time. It might be, well, you know, these are the, these are the four headings that you need to think about. Sure. Um, I have a, almost like a a table of of the four columns, which I look at particularly post-separation, because it's only really likely to be relevant post-separation unless there's any evidence that the parties intended to account to each other beforehand. So it's quite a limited exercise from that perspective, having a table and dealing with each one and just going through with them and saying, okay, right, well, you might not know the answer now, but go away and have a think about it. And they usually come back with something.
0: Okay. So we've got this information. How do we, going back to kind of the beginning of the case, what should we be thinking about before we make a claim or before we think about getting this started? Is there something we should be thinking about? Is it like just launch it and see what happens? I'm I'm thinking we probably don't want to be launching and see what happens. We probably want to have a very well thought out claim before we even go there.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. I, I... It, it, that's probably the element of procedure which can sort of trip people up. And it, it's a, I can't pretend not to be slightly joyful when you're representing a defendant that, um, you know, you get to the first hearing and you sort it all out, but you say, well, look, you haven't gone through the right, all the steps that mm-hmm. you should have gone through, and therefore, no, you can't have your costs, even though if they had done everything properly, um, they probably would have done. Um, so yes yeah, so you start with the pre-action protocol um, so there's no specific pre-action protocol for telata, Um a, a solely cpr thing we don't have it in, in family law of course already ADF my PR. heart
0: was sinking when you say pre-action <laughs> protocol i'm like and then you're like oh there's no specific where i'm like this is getting worse
1: <laughs> no no it, it's better it's better because it, it the sort of general provisions apply um, and so i mean I wouldn't be sort of quoted too hardly on hard on this, despite the fact that I'm being recorded. But uh, you know, a simple letter saying okay. this is what it is. It's a it is a letter that complies with the pre-action protocol. Um, writing to the defendant with concise details of the claim, and you say this is what the claim is. This is the basis of the claim. These are the facts that I I know about now. Summary of the facts. This is what we want you know, bullet point, boom, boom, boom. And, and if money, if, you, if you're in the position to talk about, you know, equitable accounting, then mm-hmm. put that in as well and how it's calculated. These are the documents we rely upon. The, you know, the office copy entry, the TR1 simple case, sure. um, all the receipts in relation to the mortgage contributions, if you've got it. Um, and, and here are the documents that we, we seek. This is, we would like a response within this amount of time. And come on, this is, Pretty sensible pretty sensible claim. Let's go to ADR and, and sort it out. You know, be that mediation, probably the most usual one, arbitration or or early neutral evaluation. Uh, and so the defendant has to respond within a reasonable time, you know, 14 days in a straightforward case, up to I think it's 90 days, three months in a very complex one. I, I, I can't see off the top of my head really. How you can get anywhere close to the ninety days? I'm thinking that's
0: a long time to respond.
1: I think that's probably for some of the other um, sort of big ticket commercial litigation where there isn't a pre-action protocol. I'd imagine that's what it's aimed there to do. But if you if you stipulate in your pre-action protocol letter the kind of the time, then you can Mm -hmm. have a bit more of a discussion. And if there's a particular reason to delay it, then um, you know it's always good to look pretty amenable to it. If you're if you're thinking that the correspondence is going to be flashed in front of a judge one day,
0: and so we've done this, they've not responded, or they have responded, we're not happy, and then we just give it a go, launch the application.
1: Yes, well, I mean, you very much hope they they do respond. Um, that would be great if you could narrow the issues a bit. Sure, yeah, but otherwise, sure.
0: but worst case scenario, we aren't well, able to resolve this. Nobody the, wants to go to ADR. What happens? Well, that's that's the problem. It's, it seems to
1: be pretty common, particularly. When one party is unrepresented, it just doesn't doesn't um, mm-hmm. seem to materialise with any response, um, which is quite scary. But um, yeah, so you're you're looking about whether or not you make a claim under under the Part Part Seven procedure or Part Eight. And they're quite different. Part Seven, um, it's the form N1 claim form. I think the government actually does quite a good job in terms of on its website giving the relevant guidance as to how you fill it in. Um, but of course, with that, you have statements of case. So Particulars of claim uh, and defence and mm-hmm. uh, and counterclaim, and it's that's the sort of the the thing that we hear, you know, talked about in sleights of hand amongst our sort of you know commercial barrister colleagues, and, and right when they have lots of very fun arguments on, on paper. Um, part eight, of course, is is there for claims where there is not meant to be any substantial dispute of fact, e.g. I would say well, the real question is whether there's this there should be an order for sale and/or actual accounting. So perhaps categories A and B. I was about to say, is it more A and B? Probably should go should go in there. Yeah. Categories C and D probably would go to, to part seven. Um, I suppose yes, there are potential questions to to have about substantial dispute of fact about category A and B as well. But mm. you'd imagine you'd flesh those out pretty pretty quickly within your correspondence beforehand um so part eight yeah, i I like to think actually it's a it's a much more familiar way of doing things for um family lawyers because it's a claim form n208 208 and supporting witness statements it feels a little bit like a um an nps application where you sort of yeah um so no need for statements of case, particulars of claim or, or, or defense that time. I suppose the problem is there that you can front load your costs for what could be a quite simple claim by spending lots of time with your client, drafting sure. a witness statement, and you've got to attach all of the evidence to it at that time. Um, but there's also, I suppose, the advantage that you expect a response or acknowledgement of service to that. Again, that's by another form that the government sort of puts on its website the form n210 and they've got to provide their written evidence and response within um uh within 14 days of service of the claim form uh, you can extend that time a bit by by agreement but i mean if you're you're really wanting to sort things out quickly then it, it's quite a nice procedure to, to sort of hurry things along um Definitely. and of course if they don't do an acknowledgement of service. Um, you, you can't obtain default judgment on okay. part eight, sort of harking back to sort of learning about the sort of civil procedure that's sort of you know where the defendant fails to file an of service or, or a defense but the the defendant may attend the hearing when the hearing is automatically listed, but they're not allowed to take part unless the court gives them permission <laughs> and and sometimes it <laughs> Quite a, a weird sort of situation where you sort of know you
0: like to sit in the corner, but you're not allowed to sort of take part at all. Um, <laughs> so Excellent. But that's really confusing for the Luttington person who doesn't understand why he can't explain himself or herself in front of a judge. Nice. Yes.
1: Yeah, I mean, it possibly is on a little bit more in the, in, sure. in, in the breach. Um, there's a little bit of latitude. Um, but where there isn't so much latitude is in terms of, of costs, because whilst Yes, Sorry, the, ter-
0: the, the terrifying aspect of any civil litigation case is the cost element.
1: Yes, well, they, obviously they, they generally follow the event and mm. uh, it, it, it stops or, or should stop the, the punts where you're not particularly sure, which you may sometimes get in financial remedy litigation. Uh, but, you know, cowl banks are possible, which we're familiar with and we know mm-hmm. how they work. But we've also got the the strange beast of part 36 offers, um, and mm. obviously, there's there's bending your head around. Well, what the what the effects of, of making a Part sure. 36 offer, but also getting the getting it right. But again, I mean, I, I tend to say, well, the, the government has a form form N two four two A. I think that's right, um, <laughs> and that's where you fill in the boxes and, and off it goes, and um, and you treat it as without prejudice until everything's done. Um, it could be a sort of a brilliant sort of pressure point as to sort of sorting things out. Um, yeah, so I think those are probably the, the the first things to, um, think about.
0: Um, I think you've kind of gone from start to finish here. Can you, we talked about this briefly before, but, um, what are your top takeaways from this? I think for me, it's get the conveyancing file right at the beginning or get a hold of all the documents at the beginning to have, have a think about it. But what else do we need people to, to kind of take away from this? I think, putting,
1: conv- putting me on the spot. Uh, yes, I think you're right. Con- convincing, convincing file, office copy entries, the TR one, um, really precise instructions if you can on what was said, when it was said, and what the contributions have been. You know, during yeah. during the marriage, and what you know what the dynamics been um, in terms of of where the money get. Yeah, I think probably follow the money is is usually a good starting point, but it's all obviously within the context of what what category it's in um and that should all be happening behind the scenes before
0: yeah don't rush into making the application or the the pre-action protocol letter
1: yeah exactly i I think you could be slightly faster and looser with the equitable accounting side of things Mm -hmm. and just say we'll we'll come back to you a little bit on in terms of the the, the specific details um uh, that's much rather be in a position where you can say we want X and this is how it's calculated by Y and Z, but but if you can't, um, which is understandable given that you might be looking at three years of separation and kind of myriad and ever changing picture where their you know parties are sorting out lots of other things as well.
0: Okay, cool. I have one one last question. It's a really important question, the most important question of the whole day. We are family law and lattes. So, what is your favorite coffee?
1: Oh, I think it might just be a flat white. Oh, uh, I like that. That's yeah, I'm sorry good. if that puts me in a category, but
0: <laughs> no, no, that's good. That's good. I totally approve of that. That's that's good. <laughs> nice, thank you. <laughs> I'm so
1: glad. I'm so glad that's what the question was. I don't, Oh god,
0: <laughs> you think oh god, what she's going to say to me now? No, no, it is the it is the most important question. It's fascinating to hear what people come up with, and also how much coffee people drink. It's quite impressive. But hey, it's fine.
1: <laughs> you see, I, I'm where I'm sat in my my room at, in chambers. There is a coffee machine here that's been overflowing, and i sort of stained the carpet on the side from to be a sheer amount of coffee that I've been drinking. So,
0: excellent barristers, um, nice. Yeah, just caffeinated. Well, thank you so much for doing that with me, Max. That was. Uh, really helpful, actually very useful, uh, especially for me because I am terrified of of telata. Um But um, yes, very very good, very clear, very to the point. And thank thank you so much for that. And I hope you can come back and talk to us about other types of trusts. I know that we talked about sham trusts. But yes, we're not yeah,
1: like, co- I, yeah. I realized that um, your trusts on it as a whole topic, but there's no way in which you can you can cover it all all without yeah some being wired up to coffee. I think.
0: Yeah, definitely, and also, you know, we want to get through your book. There's, there's quite a lot of stuff in the book that we have to get through. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll do more. We'll do more episodes. We'll just work through the chapters. We're not reading them out, but we'll work through the chapters together.
1: Can I not do the disclosure one? Uh, okay. <laughs> I, think, I think I think you you'll lose some people with disclosure against foreign trustees. But other than that, great. Sounds great.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Noted, <laughs> Max. Thanks so much for that. I'll let you get on with your day, and uh, thanks for coming to talk to me. Thank you again for having me. Thanks. Bye. Take care. Bye. Family Law and Lattes will continue next week. In the meantime, if you have any suggestions about the podcast or topics you'd like to hear discussed in the future, please send me a tweet at Melanie underscore Batayar, message me on Instagram at Melanie Batayar, or email me at familylawandlattes at gmail.com.